God is good. All the time. time. Hey, welcome to week three of In Search of the Holy. Sometimes Christians struggle to clearly explain our beliefs to others, especially when our beliefs may run counter to a prevailing culture that is continually radiating at high frequencies. Despite the fact that I attempt to consistently frame our narrative by what we are for, clearly there's some things we are against. By definition, to be for one thing puts you against something else. Eight of the Ten Commandments are framed up, thou shall not. We are against these eight things. We live in a day when traditional Christian teaching, and by that I just mean what Christians have always believed, is coming under fire from a prevailing Western culture. Some of our stands are unpopular, yet here we stand. I would like to suggest that in, a, in times like these, it is just as important to know why we stand and in what attitude we should stand as it is to know where we stand. Christ Church believes that the best life of any individual is lived in submission to the will of God as communicated in the clear and consistent teachings of the Bible. By definition, that puts us for some things and against other things. We stand firmly in biblical truth, but we stand here in love. It's because we love people and want the best for them that we stand upon the word of God. Let me say that one more time. It is because we love people and want the best for them that we stand upon the word of God. I have long said that unconditional love does not necessitate unconditional approval. I'm coming to believe that unconditional approval may be the opposite of unconditional love. If you love someone who is engaged in behaviors that are ultimately destructive to them, I would argue it's intrinsically unloving to fail to address those behaviors. In fact, in our culture today, we would call that an intervention. Today, we're going to explore Paul's intervention. As he identifies things that destroy the body and destroy the soul. Galatians was written by Paul to Christians in the province of Galatia. In the middle part of the first century. Galatia is located in modern Turkey. It is a province that we will visit on our 2024 fall pilgrimage to Turkey and Greece. We're going to trace some of Paul's journey. We're going to go to Ephesus. We're going to see where the letters to the seven churches of Revelation were written. And then we're going to head down to Athens and Corinth. If you've never been on a pilgrimage with me, if you'd like to go, there's some information out at the Sink Center. You can pick up a brochure. But this is right where that happened. Some Jewish Christian leaders at the time were insisting that Asian converts adopt Jewish cultural customs like dietary requirements and circumcision to become Christians. And they were quite animate about it. 
Paul is arguing against their positions and against their applications. For these leaders, being circumcised, eating kosher, is what made Jews Jews. And they truly believed that to become a Christian, you had to become a Jew first. Christianity began as a sect, S-E-C-T, of Judaism. As the movement spread west from Israel, more and more Gentiles, that just means non-Jewish people, received the good news of Christ. By now, the Jewish establishment had largely rejected the Christian movement, but there were plenty of Jewish Christians who remained caught in the middle. They practiced Judaism, but they believed that Jesus was indeed the promised Messiah. They were decreasingly finding quarter, and Christianity was increasingly becoming a Gentile movement. During this time of inevitable separation from Judaism and the eventual establishment of Christianity as a religion in its own right, there were hot debates within the early church. And they were debates over a lot of things, but the presenting issue, the presenting issue was did men who were not Jews need to be circumcised to become Christians? Let's take a look. Verse 13. For you have been called to live in freedom, my brothers and sisters, but don't use your freedom to satisfy your sinful nature. Instead, use your freedom to serve one another in love. Paul taught that salvation comes through faith in Christ. He further argued that through the blood of Jesus, our sins are forgiven. And we are free from the constraints of the Jewish law. Some twisted this teaching and argued that Christians were essentially free to sin because Jesus would just forgive you anyway. And it's popular for obvious reasons. They thought they could live like the devil and still go to heaven. I mean, who doesn't want to kick a field goal in a baseball game? Paul countered that they're not free to sin. They're set free from sin. I want to suggest to you that the same power that forgives our sin is available to us to keep us away from sin. Verse 16. So I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives, and then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. Though no Christian will ever be sinless. Nobody is perfect. Can I just hear an amen? I know about four people, maybe five that think they are, but no one is perfect. Christians will never be sinless, but Paul honestly believed that as we follow Jesus, we will sin less than we do now. To submit to the Holy Spirit is to die to self. And to die to self is to embrace a life of holiness. We trade our fallen desires for the desires of Christ for us. The next thing is going to happen. Paul's going to give us what Paul loves giving us more than anything else. A list. A list. So here are some very specific ways to miss God's bullseye for our lives. These are the thou shall nots of the new covenant. Now I want to be very clear. These 15 things, and if you're taking notes, number 1 to 15, and if you think a good sermon 
is one where you get to take a lot of notes. This could be the best sermon you have ever heard. All right. So I'm going to tell you, as I go through these 15 things, though, it's going to hit every one of us somewhere. All of us. These are ways that people miss God's intention for our lives. These are things that take us away from holiness. Before I tell you that, I got to tell you a story. Uh, a few years back, I was at, at Panera. I think it used to be called Breadco. I, I'm not quite sure about all that. But I was at Breadco slash Panera, and this guy walks up to me, and he said, I want you to know I disagree with your sermon that you preached on Wednesday night. And I thought, through it, and I, I said, I didn't give one opinion in that entire message. I said, I just told you what the Bible said, and I just told you what Paul said. And he looked at me and he goes, well, I guess I disagree with Paul. <laughs> and I said, well, that's completely different, and I ordered a scone. <laughs> so what I'm giving to you today is, is what the text says. I'm, I'm telling you what it is, 15 ways that we can miss God's will for our lives. He says, verse 19, when you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are very clear. These are indicators that we're not following God as we should. Number one, sexual immorality. An important aspect of the Judeo-Christian tradition has always involved human sexuality. It began with the command, thou shalt not commit adultery. We believe that God's best intention for the expression of human sexuality is a faithful, loving, God-honoring, monogamous relationship between a man and a woman. This means we are for committed marriage. We are against adultery. See how that works. Number two, impurity. This is really interesting to me. And it's a little gross. Maybe that's why it's interesting. The Greek word used here means the discharge that comes from an infected wound. <laughs> awesome. This is the kind of infection that doesn't really get better on its own. You're going to have to treat it in some way. So when applied to the Christian context, it's the kind of infectious sin that makes us soul sick. It's a kind of infectious sin we can't kick on our own. We might call this addiction, all right? Addiction, we can't get better on our own. It's infectious sin. Number three, lustful pleasures. This means the lack of restraint in the seeking of temporary pleasure. It's gratification of self at all cost. It's saying I want what I want and I don't care who it hurts or what it destroys as long as I get it. I would call this Fat Tuesday, Mardi Gras, New Orleans kind of sin. Lustful pleasures. It was described by C.S. Lewis as an ever-increasing appetite for ever-decreasing pleasure. It's the kind of sin you get into it and you want more and more, but it satisfies less Unless, Now, that's what C.S. Lewis wrote, but I call it the candy-covered Drano ball. Take some Drano, the stuff you put in your pipes that burns stuff free, 
and make a ball out of it and then coat it in candy. That's what sin is. I mean, you pop that thing in your mouth, it tastes really good until you get to the poison part. And then your tongue's about the size of a Volvo and your lips start turning inside out and it's just a little late. This is lustful pleasure. It'll kill you. And you'll want more and more and it satisfies less and less. Number four, idolatry. Now, most of us are feeling pretty good right now, right? It's kind of like thou shalt not murder in the Ten Commandments, right? We're feeling pretty good there. We're thinking, boom, boom, got one. All right, so this is really interesting too. Idolatry. In the Bible, anything we put ahead of God becomes an idol. What makes it an idol is not that it's a little statue representing a false god. That's just a little statue representing a false god. What makes something an idol is when we put it ahead of God. When we deny God, God's rightful place in our lives, and we put something in front of him. So idols aren't just bad things. Idols can be anything. Like phones we can't put down. Our outlook calendars that always have us doing urgent things to the neglect of important things. Do you know your family can be an idol if you put it ahead of God? Do you know your spouse can be an idol if you put it ahead of God? Did you know work can be an idol if you put it ahead of God? An idol does not refer to the substance of a thing. It's the position of a thing. Anything we put ahead of God is an idol. Have you ever had so much fun in church? Let's just be real honest. All right, here we go. Here we go. Oh, we're just getting started. Number five, sorcery. Yeah. The Greek word means drug use. Specifically, poisoning. Uh, Sorcerers in, in those days were known to poison people. They helped people poison others. You got to remember, in, in a lot of cultures back then, you really didn't have elections. You had poisonings. And so they would poison uh, an emperor or, or, or a king or a despot of some sort, and then things kind of turned over. Poisoning was interesting because they really didn't have the forensic ability to tell exactly what happened. And so you could poison people and it kind of looked like they died if you did it slowly enough. But this word for sorcery means specifically the misuse of drugs. It was part of occultic practice. And what it really refers to is that things that we invite into our minds and emotion that are by nature demonic and destructive. You say, well, tell us a little more. Okay. Way too much of what passes as entertainment these days is simply messed up. I'm not talking valueless. That happened when TV became colorized. I mean spiritually and psychologically and emotionally messed up. Weird crap. It seeps into your brain and your emotions and your mind and your spirit. Disturbing demonic, disorienting. We're against all that. That stuff has no place in the life of a Christian. And just to tag entertainment on it doesn't make it okay. So many people come to me and they say, I'm, I'm, my thought lives are completely out of control. I can't seem to control things. I have nightmares. And I say, what are you watching? Guess what they're watching? This kind of stuff. This kind of stuff has no place in our life. Sorcery. 
Number six, hostility. People have always disagreed, but I don't know that I've ever seen so many people so generally hostile, and a lot of them are armed. Think about it. The person with the right position, but the wrong attitude, still wrong. Hostility is not of God. We can disagree with people agreeably. And just because we disagree with somebody doesn't mean we need to hate somebody. Number seven, quarreling. The word used here originally meant competition, like competition, right? Uh, baseball game, competition. But it came to, win, to mean winning at all costs. I'm willing to break any rule. I'm willing to cheat. I'm willing to lie. I'm li- willing to steal as long as I can win. Winning at all costs costs. That is what quarreling means. I've got to win this argument. I don't care how bad I hurt you. I don't care how much damage I do because I am right. Number eight, jealousy. This is a burning desire for what is not ours to have. Sometimes we want things, but this is wanting things that's not yours to have. Number nine, Outbursts of anger. I bet you every other day I hear something on the news about an incident of road rage. This is a total lack of impulse control. We might say it's just losing it. This does not denote seething anger or frustration. It's temporarily out of control. We'll return to this a little later. Number 10, selfish ambition. I'm going to call this accomplishment without altruism. It's I want to be successful for the things that success brings me. I have no concern about you or anybody else or the greater good. Selfish ambition. Number 11, dissension. This describes our culture so well today. There's just dissension. Rather than address shared and obvious challenges... That should bring people together. They, these challenges just drive people further apart. And look in our culture today. Look at all of the challenges. Everybody agrees it's a problem. That should bring people on the poles together. But it just drives them further and further apart. And the problem never gets addressed. Dissension. Number 12 is kind of dissension on steroids. Division. This is just intentionally dividing. It's hating people because they are thems and not us's, whatever an us is. And you want to know why there's so much division in our culture today? Because there's good money in keeping people divided. There's power in keeping people divided. And people are going to keep folks stirring at high frequencies and hating each other because people are profiting off of hate today. Number 13, envy. This doesn't just mean I wish I had, right? I mean, you could walk through the parking lot right now and, and go on the wish I had tour as you looked at cars, right? I see, I drive a 2010 Lincoln NKZ. It's 13 years old. And you may have a whole lot nicer, newer car than mine, 
But all that says to me is somebody else said, I wish I had a car payment, which I don't. <laughs> there's, a, there's a sinister nature to the Greek word translated envy. And I want to get this to you. It's not just wanting what someone else has. It's wanting it so much that you want to deprive them of it if you can't have it. They're sinister to that. It's not just wanting what someone else has. But if you can't have it, you don't want them to have it either. That's messed up. Number 14, drunkenness. How many of you were raised in a Christian teetotaling tradition that taught against alcohol use of any kind? Raise your hand. Yeah, I was too. What I was shocked to find out was, as I got older, is historically... That has not been around very long. And it never was real popular to start with. But I was raised right in the middle of it. Alcohol has almost always been a part of the liquid consumption of humanity. But there were two things that happened about two, three hundred years ago that kind of changed how people thought about drinking. First there was the development of hard liquor. It wasn't just wine and beer anymore. It was hard liquor. The temperance movement that was led by a lot of Methodists in England, the temperance movement was based in a concern that regular working people could not handle the temptations and the damaging effects of hard liquor. And they basically said, you'd be better off without it. But they pushed it a little further. They really said, this, this, is, this is really demonic in its nature. It is something that is here to steal and kill and destroy. And guess what the words, word is that they often use to describe hard liquor? Spirits. There was something spiritual. A spiritual battle about this. So people really fought against it. Well, what kind of exacerbated that was mechanization, particularly when they figured out how to make a car that went faster than a horse. And now all of a sudden, you had a car that could achieve a speed that would kill somebody, and you have an impaired person driving that car, which turns that car into a weapon. And the temperance movement was in response to those two things. Now, the Bible does not prohibit drinking, but the Bible does prohibit drunkenness in no uncertain terms. I don't drink. I just don't. And if you ask why, is it because that's what I feel the Bible says? It's not. I, I feel the Bible is perfectly okay if people who are of age drink in temperance and in moderation, but I choose not to drink. You want to know why? Because I'm free from the law. I'm free to choose not to drink. I don't have to drink if I don't want to. <laughs> and let me tell you why I don't drink. Because nothing good happens when people are drunk. And about 80% of the people I know, if you ask them, about the stupidest thing they've ever done in their life. They were drunk when they did it. And I just don't need it. The Bible reads, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. I don't know about you, but I would rather be filled with the Holy Spirit. 
if I'm going to be filled with anything. Number 15 is the last one. It's wild parties. But this is beyond what we would think of as just partying. These are social gatherings formed with the expressed intent of losing all inhibition and for the purpose of engaging in activities contrary to not only biblical teaching, but good sense. Wild parties. And then he goes on, he says, and other sins like these. And you're sitting there thinking, there's more? (laughs) Right? I mean, goodness, he just went through 15 and there's more. And other sins like these. And then he says, let me tell you again, as I've told you before, that anyone living that sort of life will not inherit the kingdom of God. These things are the tangible fruit of a life not in union with God. These are things people do who don't know God or who don't know God well enough. And I I think we could safely say these are 15 symptoms of lost disease. The more of these symptoms you have, the further from God that you are. But now I'm going to drive this thing home. You you thought this was bad before. Wait till now. And I'm going to work you pretty hard here. So I need you to lean in and I need you to pay attention. Because if I don't, you're going to draw the wrong conclusions from this. Here we go. The idea isn't to try harder, to do better, to not do these 15 things. The idea is to give your whole life to Christ, let him change your heart, let him renew your mind, and pray that he will give you a desire to do things that are pleasing to him. That is the uniquely Christian teaching as it has to do with all of these things. If our Christian actions are only obtainable by great intentionality, when stressors crash our override, we're always going to return to our default settings. You want to know why? Because when you get squeezed, guess what comes out? When I first entered ministry, I was the director of family life ministries in Heron, Illinois. How many of you have been to Heron, Illinois? Awesome. I was there three years and I ran their gym, did their youth stuff. And on occasion, they asked me to do a children's moment in church. How many of you have ever been to a church that had a children's moment? All the kids come forward, they tell them a story, and then they go back and give them Fruit Loops. Okay, good. So, so I was a guy up front. And so I was pretty excited about this particular children's moment. So did you guys know you can take an egg and poke a little hole in it, and you can actually blow the yolk out of an egg? Does anybody know you can do this? Yeah, it's a little weird, but it, you, it can be done. So I saw that this could happen. So I got an egg, and I blew the yolk out of an egg for the children's sermon. So I have a hollow egg. And then I took some grape jelly from the refrigerator and I melted it and I got one of those things that you like shoot stuff into cakes with, made a little hole at the end and shot it full of grape jelly and then kind of patched it up. And then I threw it in the freezer overnight. So that was my prop for my children's sermon. Oh, I was rolling. So anyway, I got a basin and I got the egg. So all the kids came forward and I said, kids, what do you get When you crack an egg, chicken, egg yolk, on and on and on, right? It's all good. I said, well, let's see what you get when you crack an egg. I pop that thing and I let it fall out and this huge glump of purple grape jelly fell out. 
Everyone in the church collectively gasped. <laughs> Two of the kids threw up. <laughs> it was the last time I was ever asked to do a children's sermon. <laughs> I said, kids, when you crack an egg, you don't get a yolk or a chicken necessarily. You get whatever's on the inside. So guess what comes out of us when we get cracked? Whatever's on the inside. When you get really upset, what comes out of you? Whatever's on the inside. It's how we respond when life gets overwhelming that we find out what is truly there. The task is not try to keep it all in so no one ever knows. The task is to let Jesus change what's on the inside. Imagine that a person has a problem with anger. They get angrier than they should, and stuff makes them way angrier than it ought to. Their anger has landed them in a whole lot of hot water. They've hurt a lot of people and a lot of people's feelings, but this anger still rages. And then one day, somebody in their life loves them enough to tell them the truth. Do you, you ever have somebody that loved you enough to tell you the truth? And they said, hey, this anger's killing you, man. And it's hurting everybody around you. And if you don't get control of this, you're going to end up old and by yourself. And the person agrees. And you know what? As long as this person really, 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 really watches it, they may be able to stay on top of things for a while, right? I mean, most of us can come to church, peer normal for an hour and a half, right? Most of us can do that if we stay on top of it. Humans can temporarily do really impressive things through willpower and intentionality. But I guarantee you, something's going to hit that guy at the wrong moment, the wrong time, when they're in the wrong mood and things are just getting a little too piled up. And all this intentionality is going to crash their override and they're going to return to their default settings and they're going to blow their top. You see, my friends, the gospel message is not try harder to do better. If we were capable of doing better on our own, there would have been no need for Jesus to come. The idea is to let Jesus give us a new operating system entirely. The idea is to let him renew our minds. The idea is to let him fill our lives with his presence. Jesus said it another way to Nicodemus. You must be born again. Maybe some of you have been around church. Maybe you've been around religion. Maybe you had religion in school and you went to a religious school and But it just never really connected because you kept trying harder and harder and harder. And then there were always those occasions where it just blew up on you. It's like a game of shoots and ladders. And the shoots came way too often and finally just gave up on the thing. Religion will always tell you, try harder to do better. Ask Jesus to help you try harder to do better. That's not what Jesus offered us. Jesus offered us a new heart. And a new mind. He offered to make us new. I want to give you an invitation. 
this morning to give Jesus a try. Invite Jesus in to your life and just see what he can do. I'm going to invite you to say a prayer with me. Just something we just pray together. If you've never asked Jesus in before, let this be that moment that you say yes to him and become a Christian. If you have, let this be a prayer of renewal. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for loving me enough to confront my sin. Thank you for wanting the very best for me and those around me. I am a sinner. I make no excuses. Forgive me. Jesus, come into my life and make me brand new. Don't just change what I do, but change what I want to do. Do your work in me that I may become who you've created me to be. I pray all this in your strong name. Amen. So these were 15 morning lights that things are going awry. What are the indicators of a life that is right with God? When we're aligned with God, what are the things that we should be seeing in our lives? That is what we're going to explore next week in our concluding message of the series. And as I close, I want to be very clear, very transparent, and very open and honest with you. I fully realize there is risk involved in this culture in being clear about what a church believes. I think the only thing that's riskier is being unclear about what a church believes. We are going to stand upon the word of God, but we're going to stand there in love.